Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. This one featuring Owen Smith. Firstly, I should apologise for there not being an episode last week. Um, I haven't been very well. I've had a bit of a chest infection, so I'm very sorry um, that, uh, that I didn't pull one out last week, but I was in, uh, wasn't in the best of health and needed to rest, so... Um, Apologies for that, but here we are with Owen Smith, former Shadow Secretary of State for Northern Ireland and, of course, leadership contender just a couple of years ago. As we explore at the start of the interview, I've known Owen for quite some time. I worked on his by-election in 2006 in Blyne Gwent that wasn't successful. And he's always been such a chirpy and friendly guy. Um, he's always been... Uh, He's always found the positive side in things, and uh, I've always I've wanted to interview him for a long time, as obviously, <laughs> as I often say, and this is true. Um, but he is one of the chirpiest members of Parliament I know, uh, and always manages to find a, a positive, even in what have been um, you know difficult experiences for him. And I really appreciated him coming on. He's had a lot of media requests this week, so this is this is an exclusive. Um, we talk about all sorts of things. He's got some great stories of, of Welsh politics and uh, the experience of dealing with the public, and not just the public, many animals. Um, and we talk about uh, the, the, the nature of his departure uh, recently from the Shadow Cabinet. It's a wide-ranging interview. You get a real sense, as you do often, you know, with a lot of Labour politicians, where they're coming from morally, uh, what drives him, um, the, the causes that he truly believes in. And there is, you know, there is obviously an air of sorrow about uh, the fact that he's not in the shadow cabinet at the moment and uh, the, perhaps the direction of the Labour Party. Um, he's very diplomatic about Jeremy Corbyn, um, which is, you know, uh, impressive. Uh, given given what he's been through, so he's he's a brilliant guest, uh, and it was a real mixture of an interview, some really really funny moments, uh, some gallows humour, and some real insight into well what you really get a sense of. He, he really gets Northern Ireland. He was a special advisor to Paul Murphy, the former sh- uh, Secretary of State, and of course served as Shadow Northern Ireland Secretary. That wealth of experience is is absolutely clear. So enjoy, and please keep emailing the show political party podcast at gmail dot com. I shall read a few out on the next one. Uh, I've got some great guests lined up. Uh, and I'm also on tour. Thank you to everyone who came to the gigs in Glasgow and Edinburgh. They were incredible, absolutely packed and rocking. It's so exciting being out on the road. Um, and at the time I record this, I'm going to Bristol. Um, and then I'm, I'm doing five nights at the Soho Theatre in London from the 3rd of the 7th of April. It's a brand new show, so do come and see that. Uh, a couple of the nights, two or three of them have already almost sold out. So uh, do get your tickets through the Soho Theatre website. But for now, enjoy Owen Smith. Hello, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hey! Welcome to the monthly uh, anti-Semitic awareness meeting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> fucking hell. He's definitely a racist. <laughs> no two ways about it. The evidence is absolutely clear now. It's fucking incredible. Uh, well, maybe we should take a poll. Give me a cheer if you think Jeremy Corbyn is anti-Semitic. Yeah. Give me a cheer if you think he's not. Yeah. <laughs> 
quite rare for, for us to have a political mural that he hasn't commented on, actually. Uh, obviously, there's no, there's no prejudice in this one, so it would go unremarked on his Facebook page. But uh, welcome to the show. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a wonderful guest tonight, Mr Owen Smith. I had... <laughs> Owen's here. <laughs> tonight is an exclusive interview with Owen Smith. He's been offered many interviews in the last week or so. Can't imagine why. And uh, tonight we will uh, we'll get to the heart of it all. But uh, yes, Jeremy Corbyn commented on a, uh, frankly, appalling piece of Facebook art, of wall art. Uh, and his first reaction on seeing this racist mural uh, that was deeply anti-Semitic uh, was to advise the person that you want to be careful because they've removed stuff like that in New York. Um, now, in terms of the conspiracy theories that went around, he later admitted that it was anti-Semitic and said that he hadn't seen it properly. Um, <laughs> A great excuse for a potential Prime Minister. Yeah. Uh, but what, a number of his supporters noticed the fact that he'd misspelt the name of the artist. He'd, he'd called him Diego Vieira when the guy's name is Diego Rivera. Now, yeah, it's quite well known as well. Well, you're absolutely right. And I, I have to say, that's one of the most helpful heckles I've ever had. <laughs> it's quite well known as well. You're absolutely right, mate. It's a very, very friendly audience down here we get. <laughs> People just factually supporting whatever case you're putting forward. Thank you very much. Um, but the the problem with the logic, a lot of his supporters were saying, well, it, it can't be him. It, it can't be Corbyn because he's misspelled it. I'm like, that actually <laughs> makes it more believable. <laughs> the fact that he's misspelled it makes it more likely that it was him. So it wasn't the best defence. Of course, this, isn't, this is just the latest uh, Corbyn uh, story that has been quite incredible. Uh, the Salisbury attack um, really demonstrates the new divide in British politics. There have been many divides in the last four years. Yes or no, leave or remain, all sorts of things. The new divide, of course, in British politics is are you fucking mad or not? <laughs> and uh, really quite simple. If you don't think the Russians committed the Russia attack, you're on the wrong side of the argument. I mean, it's so, the conspiracy theories involved in it not being Russia are so incredible. I actually think that should be a new breathalyzer test. <laughs> to see, particularly to deal with drug driving... If any sort of roadside breathalyzer is inconclusive, the police should just ask, do you think Vladimir Putin was behind the attack in Salisbury? And if the people say no, it should lead to immediate arrest for consumption of drugs that are far too powerful than not even on set. Just remarkable. And all the, all the ridiculous reactions to it. Boris saying, I don't think for a... I don't think perhaps... <laughs> British representation at the World Cup should not go ahead in the usual manner. Like, what? Scotland are going to be there. <laughs> he was, he was uh, not the most mature response. And then, of course, our government were, were annoyed at the Russian response. And Theresa May said that she was annoyed by the Russians because they'd responded with sarcasm. At which the Russians replied, oh, you're odd. <laughs> uh, didn't take it seriously at all. Uh, Russian state TV, apart from all the evidence that, of course, r the Russians have carried out attacks like this before, the guy was a former Russian spy, a double agent, uh, the sorts of comments that Putin has made about what happens to double agents, on their state TV, on their six o'clock news, the Russian TV anchor looks straight down the barrel of the camera and says, if you are a traitor to Russia, do not go to Britain. Bad things happen there. People fall out of windows. People get poisoned. They fall onto railings. Bad things happen there. Now, there are two problems with this. Firstly, falling out of windows and getting poisoned, that's just a good bank holiday. <laughs> Secondly, I mean, this is, like, it's so obvious that they're guilty because, apart from anything else, can you imagine Hugh Edwards doing that here? <laughs> Coming up on the six o'clock news, the latest on Brexit negotiations, but before that, a warning to any would-be traitors. <laughs> I am justice, and you will know my pain in the screams of your children. <laughs> Time for the weather now. It's uh, looking a bit warmer out there, isn't it, Karen? 
incredible that people wouldn't think that they were that they were guilty. Vladimir Putin himself, in a in a in a, in a broadcast, was asked what to do with traitors, and he said, "Traitors will kick the bucket. Um, I hope they choke on their thirty pieces of silver." And this quote was read back to the Russian ambassador outside the Treasury the week of the Salisbury attack. And the guy from Scania says, but don't you find it slightly difficult that your, your president, Vladimir Putin, has said that traitors will kick the bucket? And he goes, uh, no, no, no. Uh, he said kick bucket in completely different context. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah, he just mean, he mean traitors are clumsy. They kick bucket. They, they fall over cat. They, they're silly people. We laugh at them. It is game we have in Russia. Kick the bucket. Yeah. Like when I say I cut your face, it means I love you. It's totally different. <laughs> Totally different context in Russia. Good job he wasn't from India, frankly, because I wouldn't have been able to get away with that. <laughs> Thank God the Russians are behind it for the sake of political correctness. Um, Corbyn, of course, rose to the challenge and stood full square behind the government, the Russian government, and... Uh, <laughs> that's a question that was so pro-Russia, it might as well have started. I've got an email here from Vladimir in Moscow. <laughs> <laughs> just incredible watching him deal with it. Russia Today has been great. I don't know if you ever watch Russia Today. You probably don't. I've been watching it a lot during this. Because the people that they will out there... George Galloway on. A man who looks like he could have potentially carried it out himself. <laughs> on TV in a fedora, a, like a, a waistcoat, a, a jet black beard. And he starts off... It's one of the best interviews. It's on YouTube. He starts off by... Um, by, by peddling the Moscow line. Basically, he said, We are living at the moment in the West in a period of heightened Russophobia. And you're like, you just, you just wanted to say the word. <laughs> not even talking. This was a story about France. Russophobia. And then he outlines what he thinks of these propaganda campaigns. He said, we have just in Britain finished the McMafia television affair. <laughs> what? That was just McMafia, mate. That wasn't... That was, a, that was a fictional drama show, you idiot. What else is he going to... And, of course, let's not forget Alexander the Meerkat from the Compare the Market scandal. <laughs> Western pigs. He then had a wonderful bit of logic, Galloway. He said, do you really think Russia would carry out this attack two weeks before the Russian presidential election and 100 days before the World Cup? Yeah. <laughs> That's the problem with asking questions on telly. That's exactly what I think they would do. Ken Livingston was wheeled out. Ken, oh, that's the correct response. Uh, Ken Livingston was reeled out. His opening line, he said, well, right, right. He sounds bored with himself these days. I'm acting out He said, um, he goes, well, you know, we have to entertain the idea that somebody else is behind it. I mean, you know, Theresa May is behind at the moment in the local elections and we cannot rule it out. I think we absolutely can, Ken. To be honest. <laughs> Whatever I think of Theresa May and the Tory party, like, what are, like, in a grand conspiracy, maybe a general election, but the local election. <laughs> Sylvia, we're on the verge of, lo of losing Calder Valley. There's only one thing for it chemical warfare. <laughs> Two wards in Stockport are on a knife edge. Get me some knobby chock. <laughs> absolutely incredible. Um, David Davis was on Mar this weekend. David Davis, a, a man who's endlessly fascinating. If only for his inability to understand how to frame a political argument. He went on Mar ill and literally had a sick bucket next to him. Now, on, firstly, no one respects anyone who goes to work ill. So that, that's, a big, that's a big markdown, isn't it? Because everyone else is going to get it. Secondly, talking about Brexit whilst literally being on the verge of being physically sick. 
It's not quite the sort of framing that I think Downing Street would have wanted. They might as well have turned up with a, a bog roll and gone, well, I'm going to be talking shit for the next five minutes. So. <laughs> oh, it's an idiot. Uh, Theresa May has announced her five tests uh, for judging Brexit as a success. She also did that thing. A lot of the Boris is trying to do this. Frame Brexit in a kind of open, liberal way. She said, we are a nation of pioneers, innovators, explorers and creators. But don't stop there. Drink drivers, kebab eaters, sheep shaggers, tax avoiders. Let's hear it for that true British grit. Uh, Unilever are moving to Rotterdam. Unilever, of course, uh, make Marmite. They won't be making it here anymore. And a spokesman said, um, you know, it's a, it's a big decision and you'll either love it or you hate it. Uh, they spread themselves too thinly, apparently, in the, uh, in the London market. Um, and uh, Parliament will vote on new laws to uh, change the way pornography is viewed on the internet. Um, you have to verify your age now. Uh, the parliamentary watchdog said they want to get the consultation process over with as quickly as possible and then feel a deep sense of shame. <laughs> uh, Arthur Jones is the North Wales Police and Crime Commissioner. He's got an innovative policy. He said he wants to legalise cannabis and allow cocaine to be available in, pharmaceutical, in, in pharmacies. Pharmaceutical outlets, also known as pharmacies. <laughs> Basically wants to legalise cocaine. Uh, the press conference was amazing. After snorting his third line, he said, we should go into business together. I feel fucking amazing. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we have uh, a very special guest tonight. Um, he's someone that I... Uh, I worked on his by-election in... Two I've always wanted to interview. I get the piss taken. It's true. It's true. It's true. It's true. I worked on his by-election campaign in 2006, uh, which we lost. So it's going to be... Quite in Blina Gwent, um, so I'm sure we'll talk about that and many other, um, not just defeats, but other things. <laughs> many other things as well. Ladies and gentlemen, um, you are a superb audience as always. We will have a quick 20 minute break and I will be back afterwards with the wonderful Owen Smith. For now, I've been Matt Ford. See you in a bit. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we have uh, a wonderful guest for you uh, and a very timely guest. Owen was actually booked to do the show in May, uh, so um, I'm very lucky that he's agreed to do it at this um, particular time. He uh, is someone that I've known, one of the people I've known longest in politics. I worked on his by-election in Blinded Gwent in 2006. was absolutely gutted uh, when we lost that. It was, um, I'm sure, something we'll talk about. His leadership campaign against Jeremy Corbyn, um, perhaps ahead of its time uh, in, terms of, um, <laughs> in terms of Owen's career, because he still has so, so more uh, to give the Labour Party and so much more uh, to achieve, I'm sure. Uh, but it was a valiant effort, um, perhaps, and history would judge... Uh, you know, a, a worthy effort to try and at least change the direction of the Labour Party. He is one of the funniest MPs I know. He's exceptionally bright. He really is. And um, he's, a, he's a gentleman. He's someone I've known for a long time. I'm delighted that he's agreed to come and give what is effectively an exclusive interview after um, being fired as Shadow Northern Ireland Secretary. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, raise the roof, please, for Mr Owen Smith! <laughs> 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 I mean, welcome to the show. Thank you for doing it. Yeah, I must be mad. <laughs> well, we, we, I was talking about Blinder Gwent there, and it was, it was such a formative experience for me as a, as a Labour Party organiser to, to go through that. It was the first time I met you, and it was, it's a defeat that still hurts to this day. Have you got over it? Uh, no, not really. Um, I haven't got over the fact that when I came in initially and picked up my free beer at the bar, MPs, classic, you know, like a free pint, uh, <laughs> Somebody sent to me, oh, it's you, is it? I thought it was Anna Subri tonight. 
So I, I'm still feeling that particular pain. But the pain of 2006 hasn't gone away because it was the longest by-election, I think, in pretty much the longest by-election in history. It was a famous by-election because it was a joint by-election for the National Assembly for Wales and for, uh, for Parliament. And, of course, it was a famous seat, Bevan's seat, Michael Foote's seat, and Labour had lost it on a massive... I think we lost a 19,000 majority and turned it into a 12,000 deficit. And I um, agreed to stand for the seat and went for it. And then as soon as I'd been selected as the candidate, I was told that I was fighting against the uh, wife and the best mate of the dead hero incumbent (laughs) who had taken on the Labour Party. So, you know, the writing was sort of on the wall from the first minute, frankly. It was was tough. There's so many things I remember about it. I remember it was the most politically educated working class that I'd... Encountered in any yeah. parliamentary seat. Thanks for that. They rejected me. <laughs> <laughs> but every, everyone knew. Everyone knew what was happening. You know, you didn't. You, so many by-elections. People don't realise who the. I remember working on the Sedgefield by-election after Tony Blair stood down and meeting a couple who had no idea Tony Blair had been their MP. Yeah. But in, yeah. it was in, to this day. I couldn't believe it. Look, he's never been our member of Parliament. I was going. You've had Tony Blair for like 30, anyway. I remember a guy, I've never forgotten this bloke, I remember knocking a door in Ebervale in, in, in Blind and Gwent, rows and rows of terraced houses, I knocked on the door in the afternoon, and this guy answered the door, wearing only a pair of Speedos, and he had a bulldog, and a handlebar tash, and a skinhead. And I, I knocked on his door, and he opened the door, I said, Tommy. oh, I'm, <laughs> I said, um, so I'm from the Labour Party, coming about the by-election, he went, look at me, mate. Do I look like I'm engaging in the political process? <laughs> put, put him down as a lib dev. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it was uh, uh, strange you should mention Bulldogs because it was a, one of my abiding memories of that campaign, other than its length and the fact that I got hammered and all the rest of it, was, um, was animals being a big feature of the campaign. Uh, and... There were several bizarre things that happened to me during the campaign. One was, you worked in Abertillery, I remember, and I knocked on a door in Six Bells in Abertillery. This is a, like a red brick, two up, two down, traditional valleys, terrace house, sort of hanging on to the side of the mountain with crampons. Um, big row of houses, and I knocked on the door, and I say, hello, I'm Owen Smith, I'm your uh, Labour candidate, and I'm you know, really opening it. And there's a bloke looking around the door at me, he's barely opened the door, and he's got a cowboy hat on. And... Uh, and uh, he said, look, I'm not interested, but, but oh, sorry, I'm voting Labour. And I was really keen. I said, look, well, you know, I just want to tell you about our policy on the NHS. It's really important. And he said, look, he said, I'm really not interested, but I'm voting Labour, so don't worry about it. And I kept going. And in the end, he opened the door up and he said, Billy's got to go up the mountain. <laughs> and he had a horse <laughs> in the passage of his two up, two down terrace house. And he had full cowboy gear on. This is absolutely true. And he led the horse out of the house. He had to duck its head to get under the door. And then he got on and rode up the mountain. And he was a sort of valley's cowboy who uh, kept his horse in the backyard. And the other animal story from that, from that campaign, which is... Well, there were two others. One, there was a bloke who lived in a street called uh, Marine Street in Cum, who had two giant tortoises, like Galapagos Island tortoises. Well, I, I'm sure it was illegal to own these things. But he, and it was a massive long street, this street, with a workingman's club in the middle of it. And he used to walk these tortoises each evening on 
dog leads down the street and tie them up outside the Labour Club and have a frame of snooker and then pick them up and take them back. And I went back campaigning and I bumped into someone who'd known this bloke and I mentioned the tortoises and uh, he, I, I said, has he still got them? And he said, no, they're, they're dead. And I said, really? Yeah, he said it was, it was weird. He said it was in quick succession. One died and then the other one died. And then he paused and he said, it's funny how they go like that, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> the worst animal story from, from that campaign, however, was of my making, which was uh, during the campaign, we came across, we were getting stuffed, right? So we were looking for any, uh, any way to get noticed and try and, try and you know, win for Labour. And... Um, Kevin Brennan, the MP for Cardiff West, <laughs> who was a great mate and was my campaign manager, uh, we came across this story about uh, an estate in Tredegar. Very nice, very tidy estate. And um, each evening, there was a massive issue because there were sheep who were eating the lawns and the flowers on the estate. Uh, like roaming all over the estate. And I turned to them and I said, this is bloody awful, all these people have flowers, you know, the daffs have come up and they've all been eaten. And they said, yeah, it's a massive issue, it's because of this bastard called Die Halfway. And I said, what do you mean? They said, well, this bloke who lives on top of the mountain in a farmhouse, halfway between Triga and Ebuvale, thus Die Halfway, who has so denuded the grass on the top of the mountain on his sheep farm that he loads his sheep into a furniture removals wagon... <laughs> every night and takes them down to graze on the pastures of Tredegar's estates. And, uh, and we decided that the way to deal with this was to put out a, uh, you know, tough on crime and the causes of crime. You've got to remember, Blair's still in charge at this point. We put out a leaflet promising asbos for sheep. <laughs> <laughs> it was not our finest hour. It sort of got a laugh, but it didn't work. No, it was, there were so many things about the, it was the first, because I was very aware that I was English being there. Yeah, I'd you worked are. On, I'd worked on by-elections and local campaigns. It's only when you go to other parts of the UK and you're asking people to vote that you actually realise the tensions within the United Kingdom. No, they don't Kingdom. like the English. Yeah, they, well, maybe they just didn't like me personally, which <laughs> was absolutely fine. But I would knock on doors and say, I'm from the late party. they go, oh, they're bussing you up from London, are they, boy? <laughs> <laughs> they said that to me, like, I remember them saying, I don't know if people are familiar with the geography of Wales, but you were very, you'd grown up very close to that constituency. About 20 miles away over the mountain, but you'd been parachuted in, see? Well, well I would knock on doors and say, so look away. he's not local, he's from bloody Pontypridd. I was like, I can see Pontypridd from here. <laughs> no, 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 it's totally different, mate, totally different. <laughs> Just, there was one guy as well, there's a local member that I've remembered. Because when you come from outside, the local party are always slightly suspicious of you, aren't they? They're, they're very suspicious of me, again, perhaps just personally. But the guy called Ken Brookman, yeah. who was a local member, he smokes roll-ups all day. He said, boy, if you, you get half an hour, I'll take you around the constituency. I'll show you everything. I said, all right. I said, I'll do it. You know, good politics. He drove me to this house in the state, and there's this huge slag heap that overlooks the estate. He went, you know what I'd do if I won the lottery? I'd have Nay Bevan's face carved into that slaggy. So when you buy yourself a house or a car, fuck that. No, I want to see Nay Bevan's face on a slaggy. <laughs> Absolute legend. Perfectly reasonable. Well, that was an, an early election. You, you then did get elected in the, in the subsequent general election. But did you join that campaign? The emotions of going... Because a by-election, the whole country is focused 
on you know one area of roughly 80,000 voters is far more intense than a general election campaign. In terms of a personal toll, was that, was that highly exhausting? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I'm the perfect candidate in as much as I get completely into it. And, um, you know, much as I thought I stood a chance of beating Jeremy Corbyn, uh, I thought I was going to win that election. And uh, I got taken aside only at the last minute to be told, you do realise we've lost. And uh, it was a slight surprise to me. But no, it was, it was, um, it was a remarkable campaign for the insights it gave me into policy. The really interesting thing about it is it's a campaign that, in many respects, I think, gave us an insight into lots of the forces that have shaped politics. You know, it was a, it was a campaign that was sort of signalling where we were headed. Because it's a, it's a, you know, very... I mean, it was the biggest Labour majority, I think, in the country at one point. 33,000 um, Klaus Smith, the former Labour MP, had there. Uh, and it was a steel town, Ebervale and Tredega, but Ebervale was where the steelworks was. And the steelworks went... Um, and uh, it's a town that is you know, right up the top end of the valleys. Uh, so it was a town in which people felt a deep and immediate sense of loss uh, and a frustration that politics wasn't able to work for them in as much as it couldn't seemingly you know, respond adequately to the end of solid, industrial, well-paying jobs that give people a real sense of purpose and meaning and identity. And, uh, and then they, people felt that the Labour Party, as the incumbent party for a long time, took them for granted. And when they were given an opportunity to kick the Labour Party in the teeth, they put on their size nine hobnails and they applied them very firmly. Um, and we lost. And, you know, it's taken a long while to win it back. And Nick Smith, the current MP, who is a uh, for blind Gwent, who's a local Guy, he's uh, he's done brilliantly at uh, you know winning people back. Worked very hard at it, but it was, I think, uh, symptomatic of where we've gone in communities that have felt buffeted by globalization and the in- end of you know the last industrial revolution and the loss of jobs and the loss of a sense of purpose in the world, and with very little optimism about what was going to replace it. And a lot of people who therefore feel um, uh, and, and are. Um, located in an area where there are relatively few job and you know, positive opportunities. The, the good thing is the Labour government in Wales has since made a mass, massive effort and the Ebervale Steelworks is long gone. It's replaced with a learning campus that is brilliant. There's been a real effort at regenerating uh, the area physically and an attempt to have an active industrial strategy that pushes jobs into the area, all the things the Labour government could do in other parts of the country if we were to win. That's very true. Um, it, one of the things I remember from the campaign as well was, was how... It was, a, it was a lesson for all of us in how candidates are framed by opponents and all the rest of it. And you'd worked for Pfizer. And the nickname... When I arrived at the constituency, had already taken root that you were Mr Viagra. Um, <laughs> And it, but it was something that would come up on the doorstep. People would say, I can't trust that bloke. He bloody walking around with a boner, didn't he? He's a phaser. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, no, he used to work for that. I think you've misunderstood the attack. Like, they're saying that he's detached, not that he's like, takes the stuff. Um, I mean, did you ever try the product? Or? I, I, I got asked that by um, uh, Piers Morgan during the campaign against Corbyn. There's no good answer to that question. <laughs> But what's the th- <laughs> but what's the truthful answer? No. 
Okay. You got some? <laughs> no, I haven't got any. No, no. I've got a bit older since, so it, you know, <laughs> it could come in handy. <laughs> but, was that, as an attack, was that something that annoyed you? Because was, it was quite funny. Was it hard to take personally? Uh, I wasn't particularly annoyed by that at the time, no. Um, you know, it's something that's uh, stuck to me <laughs> since. So, um, you know, it's become slightly more annoying. But, you know, that's, that's the least of my problems, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it goes to a sort of, I suppose in a way, you're absolutely right about the political and economic lessons of the, of the wider economy in terms of Labour politics at that time. But also there is... In, in pockets of the Labour movement now, there is a mistrust of people who've worked in the private sector, perhaps, or, or been successful or worked for pharmaceutical companies. As someone who, this breaks out tweet, but as someone who uses an inhaler on a regular basis, I'm glad that pharmaceutical companies exist. I don't defend everything they do, but th- there must be a positive side to what pharmaceutical companies do. Yeah, of course. Look, I mean, I, I think the point you make generally is true, which is we've, um, you know, it, we cannot be a party, the Labour Party, that effectively says we don't want you to represent us if you've ever worked in the private sector. You know, millions of people in this country whom we want to vote Labour and who do vote Labour work in the private sector. There is nothing, you know, inherently evil or wrong about working in the private sector. But we've definitely, I think, become uh, absolutist about some of these things to the extent that they are now viable means of attack. Um, and perhaps it will mean we end up with a narrower cadre of people in politics. I think that would be a shame. I think you want people who've got experience. And the truth is, I'm somebody who was, I was 10 years a BBC journalist when I, um, after I left university in London. And You're not helping yourself. <laughs> yeah, well, I was held against me too, because BBC are biased and Tory and all the rest of it. And during Jeremy's campaign, you know, that was something else that was levelled at me. I was someone who was after that uh, special advisor to the last Labour government in Northern Ireland, working on the peace process in the last period in which we had uh, direct rule. That too was perceived as being a problem when I ran against Jeremy because I was a new Labour spad, a new Labour special advisor. And then I worked for um, two big pharmaceutical companies or a pharma company and a biotech company who make all sorts of medicines that cure heart disease and cancer and all sorts of other things. But, you know, they are all... Yeah, they do that too. Um, But they are also, you know, massive capitalist corporations. There's no doubt about that. And if that debars you from uh, holding a position or being an effective representative of your community on behalf of a democratic socialist party, then God help us. Well, it's hard to disagree with that. I think in terms of... We'll talk about the, the, the leadership campaign. Um, when, when you stood against Jeremy, obviously it was going to be you or Angela Eagle, and you got more support from your colleagues than, than Angela did. Was, was, that, was that easy to handle, or was that quite a difficult conversation to have with Angela? Uh, no, it was relatively easy to handle, because Angela was uh, professional and magnanimous, and as you'd expect her to be, and uh, recognised that I had more support than she had, and therefore she said she'd stand aside. And in terms of pre that, obviously it was in the air that there was going to be a leadership contest of some sort. Who else was touting about? Uh, I don't know. I think there were, look, I think there were lots of people, <laughs> I think there were lots of people who were interested. Of course, you know, Chucker was talking about standing, wasn't he, at one point, and, you know, there was talk of other people. Um, I mean, I, I genuinely, you know, people don't believe this, but I genuinely hadn't planned to stand um, 
you know, in the I've rehearsed this a million times, so I don't really want to do it again. But <laughs> in the week in which it all happened and I'd resigned, um, I, I, I was actually at home in Wales looking after my brother, who is um, has epilepsy, and he did a, a major problem and was in hospital for the week. And I came out of... I, I was literally in hospital with him for 24 hours because he was in the A&E department in the Heath um, uh, being looked after, and I was the only sort of family member around to look after him. And when I came out of hospital, my phone was full of messages of people... Uh, colleagues, in essence, saying that Angela was likely at that point to be the only candidate and that they thought I would be a better candidate uh, and therefore they wanted me to put my name forward. And after canvassing opinion amongst colleagues and MPs, I put my name forward. It's a shame, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, because it was... At one point, it looked winnable. What point was that, then? (laughs) Very early on. <laughs> First 20 minutes. Yeah, but it, you must, at, the, at that time, it did feel like Corbyn was highly vulnerable, that the Labour Party had had enough, that there was enough... You know, the PLP, obviously, was heavily of a view. There was a view that perhaps some of the older members that had um, been, you know, remember prior to Corbyn were fed up, and that, that, that this was a winnable contest. Did, did you at any point genuinely think you were going to win? I always thought it was going to be incredibly difficult, if not impossible, Mm. because so many people had joined the party for Jeremy and because of Jeremy. I mean, it was like trying to win, you know, leader of a fan club against the bloke whose fan club it was. So it was always going to be incredibly difficult. And people clearly felt, and still feel, many people very passionate about him personally. And so it was always going to be an incredible uphill battle. And it turned out to be sort of like trying to climb up a cliff face. And in terms of the campaign, what, what, are, your, what are your memories of the campaign itself? Uh, that it was brutal because I think more so than previous campaigns because there was just the two of us. So that focused, the, that focused it on individuals and it focused it on... Uh, the, and, and, and because there was very little else politically happening at the time, because it was over a summer, we were sort of the only political show in town for large parts of it. And because of social media and because of the nature of the um, you know, absolutism that seems to govern how you engage in political dialogue these days, if you're to be heard, you've got to be incredibly strident all of the time. There seems to be very little room for subtlety or nuance or, or compromise um, then it became a very polarised and aggressive campaign um, from both sides. And I regret that to some extent because uh, I don't think, to be honest, it allowed either of us to give a, uh, a true impression of ourselves. I certainly didn't feel that it allowed me to give myself a, uh, give a true impression of myself, but, you know, I'll have to just live with that. Well, it was, it was hard. It was, it was obviously fascinating viewing to watch the Labour Party go through a leadership contest a year after a leadership contest, you know, it was it was unprecedented, really, in my life to see the Labour Party in that in that state. And I felt for you watching the campaign because it it, the, it was a huge uphill struggle. And in a way, you were sort of you were defined more as not Corbyn than being Owen Smith. It wasn't, you know, what is Smithism and what you would have done in a normal leadership contest would have been very different to to fight in that one. Do you do you ever think you should have kept your powder dry and, and waited, you know, for Five years' time when John McDonnell inevitably knives him and then 
And then run then. Uh, <laughs> remind me why I've agreed to do this again tonight. Because <laughs> um, I've avoided doing these interviews. I've, I've successfully skated through the last uh, 80 months or more without doing, you know, why did you do this and how did you feel about it? So I don't know why I put myself through this this evening. There must be something I've done wrong to make me do it. Um, free beer. Uh, it could be the free beer, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, absolutely. There are moments when I think, uh, why did I run in that contest? But not for a uh, personal reason that, you know, I could have saved myself to do it at a later stage because I felt then and I feel now that it was right to uh, challenge Jeremy in order to, because I felt at the time and I feel now um, that the Labour Party has to be about winning power. Uh, in order to change people's lives for the better. And I feared at the time uh, that Jeremy wasn't the right man to lead us to victory. And I feel very strongly that we've had uh, now the best part of a decade of uh, you know, a, a Tory government that is very right-wing, that has pursued their austerity politics, that has led to you know, innumerable uh, hardships for many people in the communities I represent and where I come from, and those people need a Labour government, and they need one quickly. They need one, you know, yesterday, frankly. Um, and I want to see a Labour government, uh, and I want to see one very, very rapidly. So I felt at the time that there was a danger we weren't going to win with Jeremy, and therefore we needed, because I felt, frankly, we needed to reach out to more people that we needed to be perceived as a bit more reassuring that politics is uh, always about building coalitions and having some compromise with other people's ideas uh, and yes being radical about some of the solutions that we need economically and socially but equally being patriotic and uh, having a I think a slightly more reassuring set of policies now Jeremy may well prove me wrong. And we did much, much better at the last election than I anticipated um, and than many people anticipated. And I very much hope we're going to win the next election. Any campaign has you know, ideas. It's multifaceted. Um, there are also gimmicks, aren't there? You, you know, campaign buses and things like that. Um, your campaign bus got a bit of attention, didn't it? It did. Not necessarily for all the right reasons. So, for people who don't remember, there was, there was a picture of you on the back of the bus, um, at some sort of rally, some sort of event or rally. Is that right? But yeah. then there was someone else in the picture, and their hand looked like it was doing something. Yes, <laughs> this was uh, one of the many things. There are a lot. Of, there are lots of things that go wrong in campaigns. More things went wrong in my campaign than in most. Let's be clear about that. Um, but you don't have a lot of control over all of them. One of them was that uh, we had a bus that was kindly donated by a bus company in my constituency, Edwards Coaches. If you ever want to go to the Algarve or indeed anywhere else outside Pontypridd, <coughs> they are definitely the coach company uh, to go with. Uh, and Edwards took uh, photos that my campaign had provided of some of the early rallies we did in the campaign, and they did a sort of wrapper around the bus. There was a photo of me in this sort of David Cameron-esque white shirt pose, rolled you up. know, so it's rolled up sleeves. You know, why on earth somebody <coughs> thought this was a good idea, but they did, um, talking to people. And in front of my groin, there was a hand positioned in such a way as it might have been 
doing something that Matt was talking about, David Davis doing <laughs> in the programme. And I only realised this when at a gig in the Midlands, I uh, turned to, I, I was being, I was coming off the stage and a bloke who's a union uh, leader in the Midlands said, who is a scouser, said to me, where are you going now then? And I said, uh, I'm getting back on the bus. He stole the bus. The bus, eh? That's a laugh, eh? And um, I said, why, why is that a laugh? <laughs> and uh, he said, you've seen about the bus in the papers? And I said, no, I haven't. What's wrong with the bus? He said, you know what they're all calling it, kid? And I said, no, no, I didn't. He said, it's known as the wankmobile. mobile." <laughs> <laughs> oh, God! And, and my team had to then <coughs> take me aside and explain to me why it was known as that. And at that point, did you try and like, change the picture? or We didn't have the money. <laughs> oh, God. Roll with it, I said. <laughs> oh, my God. Because I remember it very clearly, because it was a good picture, but like, it, always check for stuff like that, surely. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, if, if yeah, somebody should have done <laughs> I'm not sure it was my job to check for things like that. But things go wrong all the time. The, the, uh, one of the other moments that went wrong and uh, became a sort of meme that is still doing the rounds on Twitter whenever I say anything, is we went to Liverpool to give a speech and we'd booked, the, um, we'd booked uh, a, a venue to do this speech. And Jeremy had been up and he'd done a speech the week before and like nine million people had turned up to see him. It was like, you know, Kenny Dalgleish, the remaining Beatles. They were all there in the crowd to see... To see Corbin, uh, Ricky Tomlinson, you know, and I, I turn up, yeah, exactly, and uh, and I turn up, and we've got, oh no, he's anti, he's anti we've got, we we've got some small, <laughs> small club, pretty much like yours, you know, given the size of your audience, uh, for me, <laughs> for me to, uh, to to give a speech in, and we turn up, and uh, the bloke who's running the club, who owns the club, finds out I'm coming, and he's a Corbin, and he says, I can't come. So he bans me from speaking <laughs> in his club. Cue utter chaos in the, uh, in the Owen Smith team. You know, where is he going to do this speech that's been advertised? And they can't get into any other clubs in Liverpool because they're all Corbynites and they all hate me and they don't want me to turn up. And so somebody decides that the only thing for us to do is to do this speech outdoors because it's a nice day. So we go to some random park in Liverpool where they stick up a random set of crates in front of an ice cream van uh, for me to give a speech. And they round up whatever sort of flotsam and jetsam are left from my abortive attempt to speak at this club. And they realise it looks really crap because Jeremy's had nine million people at his event just the week before. And so... Um, they find other ways to round up more people. And a photo is taken of this gig from uh, like a tower block above it, which makes it look as bad. There's about five people <laughs> stood listening to me versus Jeremy's nine million. Uh, anyway, I get off the gig, uh, off the stage and, uh, and I'm walking away and somebody says, somebody hands me my phone. And the first thing I see is a, is a tweet that says, Smith resorts to handing out free ice cream to get people to attend his gig. And I said to this person, I said, uh, who's my, my aide, I said, look at this. I said, they'll say anything. Just because an ice cream van was behind me doing the shot, they said we were handing out free ice cream. 
damn right. <laughs> what do you mean we were landing out? <laughs> and apparently we had been given free ice cream. With 99s <coughs> and sprinkles and nuts. Fuck. To anybody who would stand in front of the... I think it's quite true. It's the marketing campaign of a paedophile. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the few things that wasn't levelled at me during the campaign. But, but thanks for that, Matt. <laughs> so the campaign reaches its, its conclusion. I suppose by the end you resigned yourself to, to defeat. To ignominious defeat, yeah, thank you for what was your relationship like with Corbyn during the campaign? Because you're spending a lot of time together on a campaign like that. Civil. So, um, uh, you know, he and I would be corralled together backstage before some of these, um, uh, you know, set-piece hustings that we were doing, uh, in, in which uh, I would get, you know, monstered by the very, very pro-Jeremy Corbyn crowd. Uh, and he'd know, of course, that he was going out to a really pro crowd, so he'd be perfectly happy and, you know, bouncing on the tips of his toes. I'd be sort of skulking round on my knees, um, you know, looking forward to it like a hole in the head. And, uh, but it was, you know, it was perfectly civil throughout. Would he ever sort of joke about it? Would he ever go, oh, you'll enjoy this, mate, they're a great crowd? No. <laughs> I went on first, they loved me, they'll love you. <laughs> no, he didn't do that, he wasn't that cruel. And would you, what sort of things would you talk about? Because Liz Kendall says that when she stood against him, she actually became quite friendly with him. Obviously, that was different because it was a wider field, so it was, it, was, it was different. But would you talk about particular things, or was it all just small talk? Uh, mainly small talk, to be honest. So we'd, you know, we had a few chats about bits and pieces, but uh, nothing that really sticks in my memory, to be honest. And afterwards, would you ever say it to was him? All, it was all pretty unfortunately acrimonious, because, as I said, of the... Uh, of the nature of the campaign, of the fact that they're just being two of us, of it, you know, of, of Jeremy's support being so resolutely uh, behind him, and, the, and and almost the sense that I was, you know, just outrageous in even standing for the leadership against him, uh, which a lot of people still feel. You know, make no bones about it. People still feel very passionate uh, that I was wrong to to run against him at all, uh, and that conditioned, I suppose, our interactions, and it certainly was the context in which the whole thing ran. In terms of the events themselves, uh, uh, many of us here will have, will have watched them on TV, you're under huge personal pressure anyway in, a, in, a, in an exposing campaign like that. You are delivering your message to an audience that doesn't just not want to hear it, is, is angry at you. How hard was it to keep you cool? Were there ever times where you just thought, I'll oh, sod this, I'm going to tell these people to fuck you? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, quite a few times. <laughs> that was the one mistake I didn't make. <laughs> did, you, did you have any coping mechanisms? Uh, sort of balling myself into a fetal position and, rock, <laughs> and, and rocking in, in, in the room. Eating afterwards. lots of ice cream. Yeah, yeah well, I did put a bit of weight on, that's true. <laughs> so then after that, he, he, he makes you shadow Northern Ireland Secretary. Yeah. W- was that... Um, how was that, was that handled? Was it very much, did he realise that he needed to bring you in? Uh, so I was rung by his uh, assistant, uh, who offered me the job, um, which was a slight surprise, although I confess I did think there might be a, uh, a sense that they would see, he would see 
strategic advantage in trying to heal divisions in the party and see reaching out to me as being symbolic of that. That's certainly the terms in which I took it, and that's part of the reason why I said yes. The other, because I felt I, I having been part of uh, such a divisive leadership contest and you know, wanting a Labour government, felt that I had a duty thereafter to try and heal some of those divisions in the Labour Party. And the other reason is uh, Northern Ireland, as I said, was somewhere where I'd uh, worked for a long time as a journalist and then as a special advisor, and it's a part of the UK that I hold very dear. And one of the things that I feel most proud about in the history of the last Labour government is we played such an important role in bringing about peace in Northern Ireland. And well, Jeremy we, did. Uh, well, I, I w- <laughs> I'd say Blair May played a slightly more important role than Jeremy. You read Tory bastard. Yeah. <laughs> you, you heard it here first. <laughs> but it was, it was, you know, it was big of him to, to, to reach out, to give you that yep. role. Um, obviously, you're, you're not in that role now. Um, for daring to suggest that um, Labour should have a more pro-European stance, or specifically that there should be a, a second referendum or a referendum on the deal, like, however, however you put it. How was the departure handled? Yeah, well, just, just to be clear, what I said in that article in The Guardian was essentially four things. One, that Brexit is increasingly looking to be, although I've always thought this, but increasingly looking to be disastrous economically for our country, however it plays out, um, even on the government's own analysis, and that nobody thought through and nobody has yet described how we can square Brexit with maintaining an open border on the island of Ireland. And that isn't just about the economy in Ireland, which is, you know, one thing, but this is Ireland, and that border, um, you know, from partition onwards has been at the root of the uh, battle between uh, different perspectives, between nationalism and unionism in Ireland. And the Tories, in my view, have been incredibly reckless in the way in which they've approached this. And given our legacy, given our heritage, given the pride in which we uh, hold the role we played in delivering uh, peace in Ireland then surely it falls to Labour to be the party that is most resolute and most clear about the problems that a border, uh, any harding of the border, poses, and most honest about it. Uh, And that is why, more than any other reason, in my role as Shadow Northern Ireland Secretary, I felt I couldn't sit by and see us slide, uh, sleepwalk towards rowing in behind any form of you know, risk uh, that we were going to end up with a hard border in Ireland. You know, beyond that, and the truth is, of course, that isn't just about the customs union. It does require us being in the single market because if you're going to have uh, a border that is open, you've got to retain regulatory alignment between the two economies either side of that border. And even if you've got a customs union agreement in the short term over the long term, when you get regulatory disalignment, you will end up with a necessity uh, of having some sort of border checks. So I felt we needed to be clear about that. And I've equally felt that Labour should be, uh, you know, we're an opposition party uh, right now. And if we are a pro-European party in opposition, clear 
as the government is clear in their own analysis, that Brexit is going to mean, even if it turns out to be you know, the best sort of soft Brexit, a diminution of the options and uh, livelihoods and economy uh, and GDP in some of the areas of the country that most need investment, including Northern Ireland, then we should be opposing it. And in opposing it, we should retain our uh, faith in democracy, our respect for the, the last result, and that should allow us, I think, if we oppose it in Parliament, to trust people once more and respect their ability. Now they've got a much clearer idea of all of the true costs of Brexit and the true realities of what it's going to look like. Because people didn't understand, in my view, the full complexity of it all. I didn't understand it. Politicians didn't understand it. These are incredibly complicated <laughs> trade arrangements we have. There are you know, stuff that has been incredibly bureaucratic and hidden for years that is now being exposed and examined and understood by a much wider group of people. And given that, we should trust people to be what they are, which is smart, and make a decision based on the full facts, not on half the facts, or indeed the lies that we were told before that. And I felt that that was the right thing for me to say for my constituents, for the Labour Party that I believe in and love, and for the country that I believe in and love. And I didn't think that was something that I should be sacked for, but it isn't straightforwardly Labour Party policy right now. It may be at some point in the future, because I was saying for months that we should be staying in the customs union, and that's now become Labour Party policy, so with a bit of luck, having a second referendum will be too. <laughs> Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Obviously, a lot of people agree with what you say, but you're, 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 then, you're in a situation <laughs> Thanks, where, <laughs> where, where that's, as you say, not low-party policy. When you wrote that article, did you think, this might get me fired? Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, there's always a possibility that if you write something isn't straightforwardly um, party policy, then it's going to get you sacked. But, you know, look, Diane Abbott said something very similar in a letter to her constituents, other colleagues. Emily Thornbury's come out today and said that apparently we may well vote for uh, the Tory Brexit 
withdrawal agreement at some point this year because it'll be vague and therefore it will be vaguely seen to pass our, our Labour's test. Now, whether that's exactly what she meant, but that's certainly not Labour Party policy because we haven't decided, uh, as far as I know, and I was in the shadow cabinet until Friday, whether, we've, <laughs> whether we're going to vote for it. Um, and I suspect she's not going to get sacked. So there may be other things at play here. But I, I, I think, you know, look, it was an option. It, it, a lot of people have levelled at me since it that, um, that, the, that it was another example of me being disloyal to Jeremy and that I should have absolutely been loyal to Jeremy throughout all this. Well, I have to say that I am someone who feels a great sense of loyalty to the Labour Party and to our country and to the constituents you know, in the town when I grew up, which I now represent. And I feel that the fortunes of the Labour Party, the country and the, my constituents, the friends and family who live in my part of the UK, will all be damaged. Their prospects will all be damaged if we uh, pursue Brexit and if we acquiesce in the face of uh, you know, this rotten, hard Brexit, in particular the Tories seem hell-bent on pursuing. And that's why I felt the loyal thing for my country, for my party and for my constituents was actually to call out what I see as being the, the, the scale of the problem we have and to call for the only solution that I can see that resolves it, which is continuing to trust the people, being extra democratic and saying at the end of this process, just as at the beginning we sought a mandate, at the end of it you seek a mandate for what is actually going to be the alternative. You know, here's what we've currently got versus what you are definitely going to have at the end of it. And we should trust people with that. You know, the, the notion of a final say, a people's say on the deal as it is actually going to be offered seems to me to be uber democratic and respecting the will of the people. Indeed, giving them another chance to absolutely rubber stamp the will of the people. In terms of the departure itself, how was it, was it handled? Was it a phone call? Was it a text? Was it face-to-face? So I got a, it was a five to six on Friday of last week, and I got a text from a political editor of a major newspaper in this country saying, uh, so did you jump or were you pushed? Uh, and I answered it by saying, well, as far as I'm aware, I've done neither. Um, uh, so I then rang them up uh, and found out what they'd been told, and they'd been rung by somebody in Jeremy's team uh, to say that I'd been sacked and that Tony Lloyd was replacing me. So I put down the phone, rang the Today programme uh, and waited for the phone call. So they, they never actually... You might not have actually been fired. <laughs> <laughs> well... It's not official um, yet. No, because what <laughs> happened then was uh, about 25 minutes later, I got a, a text... Uh, uh, from Jeremy saying that he was uh, very upset that I'd uh, at what I'd said in the Guardian. Could I give him a ring? So I gave him a ring, and he told me he was very upset at what I said in the Guardian, and he wanted me to step down from the shadow cabinet. And what did you say? I said, "So are you sacking me?" And he said, "Well, I wouldn't use those words, but, <laughs> but yes." <laughs> and I said, uh, "Well, I thanked him for the opportunity to serve in Northern Ireland." Uh, in the forces, uh, <laughs> in the shadow cabinet, sometimes felt as that. You know. um, uh, and I sincerely thanked him for that, and said sincerely that it had been a great honour, a privilege to do that. Um, uh, and it was a very cordial conversation. 
And it's very difficult, that. If they're asking you to resign, but they are, they're sacking you, but they don't... Why didn't he just sack you? I don't think he liked using the words. Oh, so actually, he, you have to slightly fill in the blanks. Well, a little bit. I think he wanted me to stand down. And I, I say, well, look, I'm not standing down, you know, but are you sacking me? And he effectively, well, he then said yes. I then did tell him that I thought it was a bit of a poor deal to tell the newspapers before he told me, and he apologised for that. Oh, but so he accepted culpability for it? I'm not sure he knew. Fuck. <laughs> so did he... Did he know? I suppose the question then is, when did he know? So did... <laughs> <laughs> did he... Did he... Do you think it was his idea, or do you think people around him said... Oh, no, look, I'm sure it's Jeremy's idea. Look, Jeremy, Jeremy's in charge. Jeremy sacked me. Um, I thought it was a bit, bit of a poor show to ring up the papers first, but there we go. A difficult position as well for Labour leaders to be creating unemployment as well, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> There's a cruel irony to it, uh, perhaps. Oh, that's very... Di- I mean, it must be hard to go through that. I mean, even though, you, you know, you've written an article where you, you, you perhaps expect it to cause ripples... It must be difficult to, to be relieved of your duties. Yeah, and, and I regret it because I... So what, regret meant, the article? No, I regret not being able to carry on as the Shadow Northern Ireland Secretary because I was very proud to be doing that job. Um, Northern Ireland is... You know, Northern Ireland is now, what, 14 months without a government, effectively, we are facing the biggest crisis in Northern Ireland we've faced for a generation. It's in the 20th anniversary year of the Good Friday Agreement. In fact, it's next week is the 20th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, or the week after the 10th. And you know, it is, as I said earlier, one of Labour's greatest achievements to have brought that about. And I spent the last uh, 10 months working assiduously to try and with the, with the Tories, um, who are obviously, you know, or with whom we have a bipartisan approach in Northern Ireland, but I've been critical, I think, of them uh, for the lacklustre way in which they've gone about trying to resolve the problems in Northern Ireland. Uh, and we've obviously got this issue of the DUP effectively in coalition with the Tories, propping them up, uh, and that's been uh, tricky, and I think we've uh, succeeded in uh, working with them, but equally being critical of some of the positions they've taken uh, and I wanted to continue to be able to engage in that because it's an important job so yeah I'm regretful of that for sure. Northern Ireland is obviously something that, that goes to the heart of many people's issues with Jeremy Corbyn his um, perceived favouritism of one particular side what was it like being Shadow Northern Ireland Secretary to Jeremy Corbyn would you know when you would discuss policy with him would he occasionally say you know what give, give Jerry a ring because he really gets this stuff you know would he, would he would he ever try and sort of nudge you in a particular way? Well, in fairness to Jeremy, he's, uh, he's not really engaged in Northern Ireland policy in the last 10 months. <laughs> and I think given his uh, history and given uh, the perception that of <laughs> his support for one side of uh, the community, then that's probably been a smart move by him. So actually, you had a lot of autonomy in the area. Yes. I mean, I, you know, look, bluntly, I've barely discussed Northern Ireland policy with Jeremy in the last 10 months. Well, that, given the fact that Northern Ireland hasn't had a government for, as you say, over a year, and its strategic importance now with Brexit and the 
the political sensitivities that affect that part of the UK in a way that don't affect any other part is profoundly quite worrying that he's seemingly not bothered. Oh, I don't think that's true to say. I don't think it's true that he's not bothered at all. But, you know, look, uh, he's trusted me to uh, deal with Northern Ireland policy over the last 10 months. Uh, you know, part of the reason he appointed me was I'm one of the few people who's worked in Northern Ireland for uh, the last Labour government and understand it and knew a lot of the people there. You know, it's been very nice that, um, you know, there's been quite a lot of uh, support for me since I left the DUP are the only part you've basically said good bloody riddance. Um, so, you know, badge of honour that. <laughs> so, <coughs> so you, were, you were in Northern Ireland recently meeting with the parties, helping to try and break the deadlock. I mean, it is a, it's a tricky situation now because politics has moved quite quickly there in many regards. The DUP, are, are, you know, one of their most remarkable achievements is, is making the political wing of the IRA look like the sensible people. How, how are they harder to deal with than Sinn Féin? Uh, uh. <laughs> No, look, that's that's not true to say. Look, the the, the reality is that um, politics in Northern Ireland is still very divided, and although peace, I think, is uh, secure there, and you know, I've never said, and I don't think anybody sensible says we're about to return to violence in Northern Ireland, um, but political normality and political and reconciliation is still far from. Secured, you know, you still got a uh, a very complex means of power sharing is the only way in which the community can come together and and run a government, and you've still got uh, the legacy of the past casting a, a deep shadow over present politics, and whether that's individuals who feel that there have been injustices on both sides, or whether it is. Uh, people in politics who still can't quite work with one another. Uh, and in some regards, the uh, what I was talking about earlier on and the sort of absolutism and the um, binary nature of politics, the way in which people feel sort of driven into very polar positions and the difficulty of reaching compromises, that does seem to me to be playing out in Northern Ireland. So in a funny sort of way, further on from the peace process and the ending of, and the ceasefire and the ending of political violence in Northern Ireland, the politics has become even more divided. You know, we are we are even more divided between Sinn Féin and DUP, between the two sort of polar, ex- polar extremes, if you like, of, of nationalism and unionism than we've been at any point in the peace process. And that, that says something about the peace process, but also says something about, you know, politics more broadly playing out in Northern Ireland. Um, and it's it's why we... It's why, it's why the Tory party shift on this, I think, has been very important. Because the Tory party, of course, in reality, started the Northern Ireland peace process with their declaration that they didn't have a selfish or strategic interest in Northern Ireland. They never say that anymore. What they say these days is we will never be neutral on the question of Northern Ireland uh, and its place within the Union, which is, you know, and uh, you know, Northern Ireland, the principle of consent is very clear and Northern Ireland is within uh, the Union of the UK until and unless the people decide otherwise. But... It's a very different position for the Tories to take, and it's made it even more important, I think, for the Labour Party to call out the uh, central uh, premises of the Good Friday Agreement, the power sharing, the notion of consent, the notion that you know the people of Northern Ireland decide, and that we as the 
government in the UK of whichever party need to be neutral brokers in many regards. And the fact that the DUP are propping up the Tories, and prior to that, the Tories effectively taken a position much more vigorously on one side of the debate than they have done in previous generations, that's changed the nature of politics in Northern Ireland. Um, so for all of those reasons, I'm sad not to be involved in it on the front bench, but I'm going to continue to be involved on it on the back benches and continue to try and play my part and, uh, and be constructive in it. Well, lots of, lots of Labour backbenchers have played big roles in uh, politics in Northern Ireland in the past, so perhaps there's some individuals you can talk to and get some tips on that. But um, <coughs> one of the theories of your, of your being relieved of your duties as Shadow Secretary of State of Northern Ireland was that it was actually a deflection away from this anti-Semitism row, this new anti-Semitism row that has, that has inflamed uh, Corbyn's leadership again. Well, if it was, that didn't work, did it? <laughs> no, it didn't, no. <coughs> Do you think he's anti-Semitic? No, I don't. So, but then how would you categorise him? Because the evidence seems to suggest that he is. Uh, I I don't think Jeremy Corbyn is anti-Semitic, but I do think we have uh, a problem in the Labour Party with people who are anti-Semitic. And I think the honest truth is that we didn't have a problem in the Labour Party with people who are anti-Semitic prior to Jeremy Corbyn being the leader of the Labour Party. So what is the connection? The connection is that people who were uh, previously on the fringes of left politics, who were in other parties, whether it was the SWP or uh, you know, various other uh, fringe parts of left politics, those people, many of them, are now in the Labour Party. Um, and you know, there have always been strains of anti-Semitism in fringe parts of the polar extremes of left and right politics that have always been people for, you know, a hundred years and more um, across Europe who associated um, Jewish community with capitalism and and therefore saw it somehow as part of the the class struggle, Um, uh, you know, and you saw that most vigorously, of course, at the turn of the last century and then through the, the first... 45 years of the, of the last century. Um, and some of those people who still peddle those lies and still subscribe to that uh, rubbish, you know, that abhorrent rubbish, unfortunately, it washed up on the shores of the Labour Party. And, you know, I think they, uh, they need to be kicked out full stop. Quite apart from how chilling any form of racism and prejudice is, quite apart from that, it's just so weird that the Labour Party has got itself... I always remember the Labour Party for years. I met sexist people, racist people. You know, every party has its problems. There's no doubt about that. And you, you go into the backwaters of parts of the UK, there are strange, eccentric people on left, right and centre. No doubt about it. But this... The, the prominence and the dominance of it and the lack of action from the leadership, the fact that these members of these Facebook groups and these comments under racist murals effectively supporting them... But I'm, not, I'm not sure I can come to terms with how shocked I am about it. Well, I, I don't know what he was doing with that mural. I mean, I think anybody who took, frankly, even a cursory glance at the mural would be hard-pushed, in my view, not to see instantly, uh, you know, a mu- uh, images that were reminiscent of the sort of anti-Semitic, uh, fascist... Uh, Nazi um, 
propaganda that you'd have seen in Stürmer's Streicher. Um, I think anybody would have would have seen that quite quickly. But you know, Jeremy says he didn't look at it carefully, and you know, you got to, I suppose, accept his word in that regard. Um, and he's obviously said subsequently that he, having looked at it carefully, does see that it's anti-Semitic. But uh, I just think we need, you know, stronger action because you know it is genuinely shameful the, the Labour Party for all of the obvious reasons of our being an anti-racist party of equality and tolerance and our having played such an important role in increasing tolerance and equality in this country for us to be subject to um, campaigning by the Jewish community worried at the anti-Semitism in our ranks should be shaming for us all. And again, in fairness to Jeremy, he said that. He's admitted that there is anti-Semitism in pockets of the Labour Party. And some of that, as I said, is that you know, deep-rooted, pernicious anti-Semitism that we've seen uh, in left fringe politics for a century or more. Some of it is related to people um, draw, draw, drawing you know, bizarre, wrong uh, comparisons and, and misapprehensions between criticism of Israel uh, and criticism of the Jewish people, and you know we just we've just got to have no tolerance for this. We've got to have much stronger action. He's got to make sure that those people have got no place in the Labour Party. You know, he, they can't shelter under anybody's skirts in Labour. They've just got to be gone. But then he is—he's the one who's left the co- like. Should he discipline himself? <laughs> he's apologised for. Um, the way in which he responded to that mural, he was right to do so. Because if he was another... Had he been... What all I think of is, if he was another member of the Labour Party, he'd be, he'd be he'd be he'd face disciplinary action. I mean, would it be possible, do you think, for the leader of the Labour Party to suspend themselves for a period? <laughs> because in terms of logic and things now, I mean, it's not entirely inconceivable that he could say, right, I'm going to have a week off. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to think very long and hard for it, then I'll come back and see the next week. And people go, yeah, that's fine. It's what Jeremy does, you know. Yeah, you probably get away with it. <laughs> I mean, do you, do you when you see this new level of it now? Do you think I can't believe I lost to him? <laughs> I'd like to say I thought that. <laughs> Put words in your mouth there a bit. Um, I'll open up the floor. I forgot to put my watch. Has anyone got a watch that I could borrow just to keep time? Yeah, we're so finished. Can... <laughs> oh, we're not. <laughs> can I borrow your watch? Thank you very much. Thank you. That's a gorgeous watch. Okay, I'll start the bidding at £10. Um, <laughs> it's very kind, thank you very much. So, uh, if we could just have the house lights up um, on the audience and indicate clearly, and uh, Jules will come through with a microphone and uh, get, uh, get in. Let us know your name and uh, your question. So, anyone in this section here like to ask a question? Yes, the lady at the front who lent me the watch, so that is more than, more than fair enough. Thank you very much, Jules. Thank you. Isn't, isn't, that, isn't that sort of, you know treating or something, that she's giving you the watch and now she's getting a question. <laughs> oh, mate, this isn't a democracy, it's corrupt as hell. <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll, I'll accept any bribe. I'm a supporter of Matt Ford, because I'm here quite a lot. Um, the question is, if you went for a second referendum, what question exactly would you be asking? Oh, that is a great question. <laughs> I, I don't think it's very complicated. I think it would be, again, do we remain or do we leave? But with a... <laughs> clarity at that point as to what terms we were leaving on whereas what we were asked last time do we leave or remain you know in in abstract without the degree of clarity about 
whether we would have trading arrangements with lots of other countries, whether we would have you know, greater or lesser GDP as a result of it, whether we'd actually have more money subsequently to pay for public services. By the end of this process, those things will be much clearer because the government will have spelled out some of them as they have done in their own uh, impact assessments and the people will be able to draw a conclusion based on those facts as opposed to uh, projection. That's a bloody long question to put on a ballot paper. No, it would, <laughs> it would say leave or remain. Oh, but come on, you, 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 you were around in the new Labour days. You've got to try and influence it. You, you say, you know, do you want to remain in the European Union or do you want to ruin your own fucking life? <laughs> <laughs> Just a subtle spin on it like that. You know, you can sort of hide it in particular ways. Yes, right at the back, the gentleman there. I'll come to you next. Um, you, you said that Jeremy had performed, in the election last year, had uh, performed better than you, than you anticipated. Did he perform better than you'd hoped? Oh, spot the journalist. <laughs> no, I want a Labour government. Uh, I've always wanted a Labour government, and I want a Labour government now. That was a... Yeah. <laughs> yes, the lady there, and then I will. Um, I asked you this question at one of the hustings. Um, oh, um, I'll get my coat. <laughs> <laughs> I was nice. Um, what you were the only th- one, I remember you. Oh, <laughs> oh <laughs> um, mate. Um, the, the question was, um, obviously, many of the working class populations in the north of England and um, my in-laws in Lincoln... Um, voted for Brexit. Do you think they've changed their opinion um, now? And how would you win them over if there was a second referendum? Well, I think some people have changed their opinion. Um, it's, uh, give you an anecdotal uh, illustration. Uh, when I voted against Article 50, uh, because I was one of the 50 people who didn't vote to trigger it, I got about 500-odd emails 300 of which were opposed, 200 of which and you know, thought I was a traitor and betraying one of the people uh, and, you know, going to kill myself, etc. They were just from your local party. That was just the family. <laughs> uh, and, um, uh, and about 200 were positive. Uh, in light of my sacking this week, I've had about 600 emails, 550-odd of which have been positive. And only uh, 50 have been negative and only two death threats. So it's um, <laughs> it, it's definite upward trajectory. <laughs> now, you know, look, I, that's totally anecdotal, but I think it is reflective of a bit of what I felt in the country, which is people are, you know, the polls show that people are still quite stubbornly sticking to the position they took. There's a bit of movement in, in favour of uh, Remain. There's a bit of a shift, but it's very marginal but people are slightly less certain about it. And there is definitely less anger, and there is a bit more questioning of it, and there is a bit greater appreciation of how it is much more complicated and much more difficult than perhaps we imagined. Um, And I think if Labour continue to make a powerful argument for the merits of staying, for the benefits for our economy, for the benefits for the security of our country, for the benefits... uh, that we have in terms of our position in the world that is ever more complicated and global and where we need to forge more and more allegiances and alliances in order to amplify our voice and make ourselves stronger, then I think if we made some of those arguments, which is we didn't make strongly enough, in my view, during the referendum, then we could change people's minds. 
Uh, and if we did change people's minds, in my view, that would be for the benefit of the country, because I do not think there is such a thing as a good Brexit. I think, and, and neither do the government. The government point out that even if we leave with the best sort of free trade agreement they've described, it's still going to essentially lead to a 1.5% or 2% reduction in our GDP. Well, that's another, that's another recession that we're going through. And, you know, we have a 10 years of austerity already because of the bankers' crash. Do we really want another 10 years of austerity as a result of Brexit? You know, my constituents can't afford it. Do you think that Labour, or Corbyn more specifically, is waiting for public opinion to turn and then he will incrementally become more pro-European? Uh, I don't know. Um, I think there are some people within the party who are definite Remainers who feel that a sort of softly, softly, catchy monkey uh, approach and seeing where the public opinion turns is the right way. My view is that Politics is about showing leadership, and I've attempted to do that, and I've been proud of trying to do that at various points in my career. I think this is another moment when we need to show leadership. That's why I wrote the article I wrote. It's why I got the sack. Um, but I think it is worth it because uh, if we don't show leadership, if Labour doesn't show leadership, then the danger are that the, with the two major parties effectively acquiescing in a soft or hard Brexit, but you know, more likely a soft Brexit that is nonetheless going to result in smaller GDP and lesser economy and less money for public services, then that's a, that's a pretty poor show, frankly. In fact, it's a shit show, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't subscribe to it. Uh, yes, the lady at the front. So it's quite hard for you, as somebody who works for Pfizer, to talk about soft and hard. <laughs> <laughs> Very easy, actually. <laughs> what a rude joke. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think it's really difficult with um, listening to you talk about with Corbyn specifically, but generally with politicians when they are you know, on that line of racism where it's not really too clear cut enough where you can point it out as specific racist. For example, with Corbyn, it's like maybe he didn't really look at that photo. You've got to give him the benefit of the doubt to a certain extent. Um, I guess my question to you would be, at what point do you think it would be uh, he's crossed the line where you would leave the party, even assuming that perhaps the leadership or the membership, sorry, stayed behind him? Not necessarily about racism. <laughs> I don't know. That's an impossible hypothetical question. Um, but my, but my, because I don't, I don't know what could happen. Obviously, but my instinct is that you know I don't ever want to leave the Labour Party. It's my party. I've been in it now for thirty-two years, uh, and you know the Labour Party that I know and love is a tolerant broad church that seeks to build uh, alliances uh, and sometimes has to compromise but is about improving the lives of everybody in this country but in particular working people in this country and I don't want to not be a part of that and therefore uh, I want to stick in and fight for my values and fight for the country and constituents that I believe in. Well, it would depend what he did. But, you know, I take him at his word that he didn't see that that mural... He didn't, he didn't look at that mural closely enough to appreciate it. Mean, as I said earlier on, I find it hard that somebody could not clock that it was, you know, absolute bog-standard uh, anti-Semitic image because I looked at it for about a nanosecond could see precisely what it was and, you know, the connotations and the overtones and, uh, and, and what it reminded us of and... But, you know, take him at his word. 
I suppose you're right. So it's a broad hypothetical question. So let's do specifics. What if you killed a man? <laughs> <laughs> basically, it was McDonald. <laughs> I don't, I don't mean it, John. <laughs> uh, is there anyone from this section of the crowd that likes... Yes, there's someone that um, indicating might be quite hard to get across there. Here we go. Hi. Uh, do you think the constant interventions of Matt's hero, Tony Blair, helps or hinders your case for a second referendum? <laughs> Fuck off, mate. <laughs> um, well... You know, I, I, I'm someone who was, uh, you know, it, it amused a lot of people who've known me a long time to see me described as a Blairite, <laughs> because I don't think anybody who knew me particularly closely, including Tony, uh, would have ever really described me as a Blairite, because I probably was someone who was more on the left of the Labour Party uh, in previous generations, and I might find myself sort of on the hard right of the Labour Party <laughs> uh, versus some people. Um, but, look, I think what Blair's been saying about uh, Brexit is, is right. You know, I can say no more than that. I think he's been right to point out that Brexit is, even in the softest, most benign terms, going to leave our country more isolated, poorer, weaker, um, and that all of the bullshit that has been um, talked by the Tories and the Brexiters is, you know, just being exposed as such day and daily. Uh, and he's right also, I think, to say that uh, if we trust people in this country, it's not undemocratic to say trust them at the end of the uh, process as you trust them at the beginning. And he's also right to say, you know, why on earth on this issue above all else are we treating um, uh, the nature of the mandate that the politicians were given as so absolute? that it absolutely doesn't mean that we can be in a customs union. It absolutely doesn't mean we can be in a single market. You know, it absolutely doesn't... It means we've just got to leave full stop, no matter how hard the cost, no matter how uh, difficult the terms. And that seems to me, frankly, to be um, a sort of intolerant absolutism uh, that we're seeing in other aspects of policy. So we should resist, because people aren't, um, you know, daft. People do understand and can engage with the detail if they're given the truth and at the point at which it's clear just where how problematic this is going to be or you know if people think it's going to be great at the end of it then trust people to to think again about it and either rubber stamp it or reject it so in short Blair's a genius. He's dead right on this. <coughs> right, one last question. Is there anyone from the balcony about to ask one? Yes, there is a gentleman up there. Sorry about this, Jules. Good for your pedometer, though, mate. 20 for 10k. Well, it's just easy for the podcast if it's on the microphone, if that's okay. The benefit of the people. I've got one last. Oh, there's one more thing I want to ask. Oh, <laughs> right, here we go. I uh, just wanted to ask, given your experience of challenging Corbyn and the way that the last couple of leadership elections have panned out, what possible evidence can you cling to that the next leader of the Labour Party will be any less extreme, incompetent, or unelectable as Corbyn? <laughs> And by the way, I, voting for you was the last thing I did before leaving the Labour Party. 
Yeah, yeah. These Blair tell us where you really, tell us what you really think. <laughs> Bring back Blair. <laughs> okay, that's pretty clear then. <laughs> um, uh, but I can't give you any reassurance whatsoever. <laughs> One thing I was going to ask was, obviously, you're standing for the leadership of the Labour Party. If you're one, you'd have been leader of the opposition. You'd have then gone into a general election. I wouldn't have been doing shows like this. <laughs> My advisors would have said, don't do it. Would you have overruled them? No, I'd have listened. <laughs> but you could have, you were, you'd have been on the brink of being Prime Minister. Do you think Britain in 2018 is ready for a Welsh Prime Minister? <laughs> Uh, given the way in which you opened the show, listing the various uh, characteristics and foibles of the British people, and included the phrase sheep shaggers, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> that was more aimed at people from Derby. That was like a that was a that was a that was a football. Thing. Oh, I just took it personally. <laughs> um, it's a question that I've ended, and it was really one of the one of the questions that has dominated British politics in the last two years. What's the naughtiest thing you've ever done? <laughs> Um. See, the thing is, you're not struggling to think of an example. You're trying to. I'm, try, I'm, trying, I'm trying to rule things out. <laughs> uh, I, I will give you. I will give you just. Uh, it's. It's. it's uh, most of the things I can't possibly say. Uh, <laughs> or, on 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 Friday night, after I'd been told by uh, you may have noticed when I walked onto the stage tonight that I am limping. I didn't know Quite heavily on my left leg. I'll, I'll do it for effect when I go off the stage. <laughs> but I'm limping quite heavily on my left leg. And that is because on... Corbin hit you. No, on <laughs> Friday night, after I'd been told that I'd been given the bullet by Jeremy, I went to a wedding and I led the conga <laughs> with such vigour that I have popped my ACL ligament in my left knee. So I have a... Con- you know, Paul Gascoigne did it playing football for England... <laughs> I did it doing the conga in <laughs> I mean, it's kind of, it's quite a sweet way to get an injury. Yeah. How drunk were you? Very. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was it, brains? Uh, and, and anything else I could get my hands on. <laughs> and was, was that, was that, was that fueled by the, the departure? No, it was fueled by um, two of the people who worked with me over the last few years getting, getting married and us having a good time. But I did lead it through the, 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 the room where the reception was and into the bar and then through the restaurant of the hotel. And yes, there is video. Of <laughs> <laughs> did, did anyone go, fucking hell, that's Owen Smith? Yeah, quite a lot of people. They joined the conference. <laughs> It's all going, he's the Shadow Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. Someone else going, no, he's not. (laughs) (laughs) Owen, this has been such a treat. Thank you so much for doing it. I'm delighted you did it. It's been wonderful. Ladies and gentlemen, before we go, uh, next month's guest is the Conservative MP Heidi Allen. Uh, In May... (laughs) You don't, you dare. Uh, She is uh, an exceptional... uh, You will be very aware of her uh, brilliant work in opposing her own government and and is... uh, (coughs) A beacon of hope for many people in politics. Uh, in May, it was going to be Owen, so I will announce the May guest suit in June. It is Mr. Plebgate himself, Andrew Mitchell. Uh, and I think in October, David Blunkett. So they're the ones that I can announce at the moment. I'll announce more uh, as the uh, days and weeks unfold. Ladies and gentlemen, please give it... Well, firstly, thank you for coming and for being such a great crowd. But let's end tonight by giving a huge thank you to the wonderful Owen Smith. <laughs>
There you go, Owen Smith. What a t- what a fascinating um, person to spend time with. And just get the benefit of all that experience. But a real, I mean, I don't think we we really addressed it explicitly. But it's hard not to feel a sense of sorrow, I guess, at, at the way things have gone for certain people, um, and particularly in the week that the Labour Party has had with all these anti-Semitism rows, the, the fortnight, really, that Labour's had. Quite a troubling time again for the Labour Party. You know, that post-election boom and honeymoon period, even in opposition, feels like it's slightly worn off a bit. Um, and it'd be interesting to see how these stories develop and how they play out and what happens. But there's no doubt that for a lot of Labour MPs, this period is, is very difficult. Not just politically, but personally. And you get the sense... I get the sense that, that a lot of people are hurting at the moment uh, about what's happening, and, and they they feel slightly powerless to do anything about it. Um, but Owen was brilliant. Those stories are incredible. I've totally forgotten about Asbos for Sheep. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, however, Owen is exceptionally bright. He's a very smart guy. You know, the, it doesn't matter how smart and how good at politics you are. At some point in politics, silly things will happen, and uh, he, he handles them so well. Um, he, he was a pleasure to have on. Um, I was very grateful that he came and, uh, and did the show. Um, so, the next... Oh, oh, I'm doing the Soho Theatre, as I mentioned, 3rd to the 7th of April, and then I'm on a nationwide tour from then, so uh, you can get tickets for all those shows through the website mattford.com slash live. My next guest at the monthly show is Heidi Allen, which I'm very excited about, one of the most outspoken Conservative MPs in the House of Commons, and a real hero uh, to many people. She's absolutely brilliant. Someone who has already made a huge impact, despite only being an MP for a very short time. So I can't wait for that. Um, a couple more guests to announce. Andrew Mitchell in June. David Blunkett in October. And I'm working on May and some of the others. As always, some very exciting names in the frame. And I can't wait to, to interview them all. Um, for now, thank you very much for downloading. Thank you for those of you that have left iTunes reviews. I know I pester people, but it makes such a difference in helping other people find it and helping boost the profile of the show. And now that I'm doing it weekly, you know, it's... <coughs> Excuse me. I just want as many people as possible to listen to it. So thank you for uh, those of you that share it uh, on Twitter and on social media. If you could put it on your Facebook page and all that, it really helps. Thank you. And for leaving such nice reviews and nice comments. And drop me an email, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. I will do some uh, a proper email um, rundown next week. Um, but as always, just thank you for listening. And uh, I shall see you soon. Ta-ra! Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.